This is Kyle Worley, and I'm joined by my co-host, Jen Wilkin and JT English. And uh, we're doing this today. We are knocking this out. We are, um, we're, we're, we're recording podcasts, guys. We're hey, making podcasts. And we all found the internet, so that's really and good. We all found the internet. <laughs> yeah, I don't know what I was thinking. I, I was trying to lay on that if episode. you're looking for us on the internet, you are congratulations. <laughs> yep. Welcome to the internet. Um yeah, and there's, you know what? Honestly, if you find good stuff on the internet at this point, you should applaud yourself. You should. It's, mm-hmm. it's it, you know, it seems like it's not hard to find the internet; it's just hard to find the good stuff on it. So, true, true. congratulations, you are in good company. Uh, today, we're looking at Romans twelve nine through twenty one, uh, and uh, this is going to be fun. I'm going to read Romans twelve nine through twenty one for us, uh, and uh, we'll jump in. Here we go. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. All right. So, gosh, I'm kind of disappointed because look at all of this moralism and legalism, (laughs) right? You make a really good point. Where's the gospel, Jen? Yeah. Paul is not gospel centered. Mm -hmm. No, he's not. He's totally blown it. But you make a really good point because if we, this is another great reason that you read the whole book, right? Because if we just dive in in Romans 12, we might actually veer toward legalism. And if we stop at Romans 11, we might just veer toward cheap grace. But um, Paul gives us both aspects of the, of, of salvation here, that you are saved by grace through faith alone. And also that the result of that is that you're going to, you're going to do good. Yeah. And it's, it's good to do good, right? Yeah. It's so much better than doing bad. Can we just say that? That's kind of what I feel like. I feel like for the last I don't know, 15 years in our little corner of evangelicalism, we've just been straight up, uh, immunized to just saying it's better for you to do good than to do bad. Yes. I feel like we've got a caveat. It's so hard Mm -hmm. and I'm sick and tired of it. Yeah. And I think also, you know, the corresponding piece, like we, it's, we've told Christian, well, we've, we've emphasized in Christian circles, Hey, if you talk about doing good, you're a legalist. But also I think we've lost sight of the fact that um, even we even want unbelievers to do good. Yes. Like we do. That's good for the community when unbelievers do good. And so we've been afraid too to say, hey, you know what is good good to do this, this, or this, because then they won't understand grace, you know. But um, if, if you look at even what we're going to look at today and, and, and Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount, apparently people who do good are an influence on other people around them to do good as well. And it's good for all of us when people— um, 
don't break the law, but instead obey it. I mean, we know this. We know this in the way that everyday life plays out. We don't want uh, people, whether Christian or unchristian, to break traffic laws on a regular basis. We want them to obey them, even if they do it for the wrong motive. It's better for all of us, right? And so um, we've lost in this conversation a distinction between moralism and morality. And morality is for the common good um, and should be celebrated and supported. Moralism, where you obey to earn, is the enemy. That's exactly right. We've said on this podcast before, God, uh, the the phrase, uh, you know, we, we uh, for years we heard God doesn't make bad people good. He makes dead people alive. Mm-hmm. That's like, true though. Flip though. <laughs> God, God makes dead people alive and having made dead people alive, he makes bad people good. Oh, that's that, so good, Kyle. You just got to flip those things. It's like that little, I, 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 I am, I've had enough of, I've had enough of it. I'm really... I am so sick of it. If I had to write a book right now, I would probably write a book that's like Jesus plus nothing equals nothing. Um, like it's like I feel like the problem is we have so. Did you say con- Jesus plus nothing equals nothing? I, yes, because because I make the- sure we don't find two ditches on this podcast. <laughs> I'm just, no, I'm just saying that like I, the, we have so. Hey Jesus, const- you're great. But if I have nothing to you, there's nothing there. <laughs> okay, Kyle. <laughs> Kyle, I love you. And I'm sorry. I, that JT I, is sometimes I, a bit on. of an I'm abusive brother. I'm just asking a question about what he asked. I was stating it for emphasis and I probably overstated my case. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that doesn't, that's just so surprising. Mm-hmm. Among the three of us that anyone would do that. Kyle's hyperbole plus nothing equals nothing. But my, but my, my issue is I feel like we have consecrated not do, like being like, yeah, you know what? You don't really have to do anything. And yes, that's true as it pertains to receiving the gift of salvation. But there is in no way does much of the New Testament makes sense if we table the fact that God seems to be fully expecting his people to walk in his righteous ways after mm-hmm. he makes them righteous. Mm-hmm. Like, I just this- wonder, because like, I'm agreeing with everything, everything you're saying, but like, are there really, like, really actually people out there in our little circle of evangelicals yes. who disagree with this? Because most of them, though they might not emphasize it the right way, would all say the indicative leads to the imperative. I think, I, I don't know, JT, I read a lot of stuff on the internet where we all are. Um, where or find people, the better stuff. Where people are shaming, you know, it, it's like, no, if you talk about, it's, it's I'm just going to preach Christ and him crucified as though that means you just stop talking after, you know, justification. And I do think that if you press people who are, are talking a lot about grace and not a lot about obedience, they will go, well, yeah, 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 sure, we're supposed to obey. Um, but I do think, it, and maybe it is because we're so prone to overstating our points, right? And I include myself in that, Kyle, I'm not dogging on you right now, um, that that this conversation gets so murky. But, um, you know, if I had a nickel for every time I've read, hey, if you just lay a bunch of rules on people, they're going to be crushed by the weight of their guilt. And I'm like, well, you know, what do we do with all the wisdom literature? But like, do people actually say that? People actually say that, yes. Because my, my sense, I could be dead wrong about this. My sense is that we just have sound bites and we'll listen to each other's sound bites, tweets, blog posts, even podcasts, or whole sermons about preaching Christ crucified. And we can overstate things. But I just don't know that if evangelicalism is really mired and dogged by this idea of 
sanctification is not a part of the gospel. I just don't know that I believe that. Let me give you an example. Think about how common the assertion is that you have to conclude every sermon or message by pointing them to Christ. And they don't mean point them to Christ and his obedience. They mean point them to Christ and his sacrificial death. That is, that's what we're supposed to do again, every we time also we teach. spend a lot of time. I don't think that's true, Jen. I think we also spend a lot of time talking about application. Go be good parents. Go do this. Like there's application points that are, that are exhortations and imperatives. I, maybe, maybe we're coming out of it. Maybe, maybe we are genuinely at this moment coming out of the fog. I, I, I truly hope that we are. And I hope that we are hearing less and less of that, but it was, there was a not small period of time, at least in the scope of just the short time I've been in vocational ministry, mm-hmm. where it was, I think, almost taboo mm-hmm. to not get to the cross and resurrection and grace by grace through faith in Christ alone, every sermon. Mm-hmm. And that I think that stood in place of a lot of the plain reading of going, God is wanting you to let love be genuine and abhor what is evil. And you should do that. And I don't have to come up and say at the end, I know some of you don't abhor what is evil. And you know what? It's okay to not abhor what is evil. And But guess what? There's salvation by grace through faith in Christ. And you can receive that salvation today. I just feel like that to me. Nobody has ever said that. JT, I have written three books on sanctification and I've taken an absolute beating for it. So- Yes, I think what that I'm people saying do is, say I'm not saying that there aren't people who disagree about our understanding of sanctification. I, I would bet you, you cannot find a Christian author, tweeter, whatever, who would say, don't abhor what is evil. It's okay. It's do totally you, fine. Do, do, you see, do you feel like you see a burning fervency in gospel-centered evangelicalism for holiness and a, and a deep reverence for the fear of the holiness of God? Do you think that is as pronounced as a grace-fueled, grace-drenched, grace-marinated, whatever? I think we're trying to over-hyperbolize this. Like, again, it has to be either we could emphasize this more or it's like, we're not doing this at all. Well, we don't I, think God's holy. But I, I think when someone— Someone overemphasizes one thing, you bring things back. It's a corrective. Sure. It is a corrective. And so yes, that doesn't mean it's an that. overemphasis, but it does mean it might be a renewed emphasis. And that's that's what that's how I have viewed the things that I've written as hang on, hang on, hang on. You know, let's let's bring the let's bring the pendulum back to center. And I hope I don't over communicate it. Mm-hmm. But I think then you I think one place we can give grace on this is that um, when when people have a platform for expressing an idea, they can't communicate a thousand things. They're going to communicate one or two mm-hmm. right. um, with effectiveness. And so you are going to have voices that are going to major in one thing versus another. And, and it's up to the listener to understand sometimes how those voices factor together to get to a right place. Agreed, 100%. I think part of this is also missiological in terms of emphasis. Uh, certainly... Uh, uh, there, there is value in saying, "Hey, when, when our, when the global West, when we had a broad, at least." T- uh- tacit or implicit understanding of a shared moral compass, mm-hmm. uh, then maybe it was okay for us to uh, de-emphasize or or push the brakes on some moral uh, exhortations. I don't think that shared moral compass is coherent, intelligible any longer. And so for that reason, I think in a culture of widespread increasing immorality, Mm -hmm. I think it is 
perfectly within the Christian tradition to go, you know what, maybe we should start talking about obedience a little Mm -hmm. bit louder because it seems like it's going to get a whole lot harder. I think also, uh, and we need to move into the passage. I don't want us to lose time to talk about these actual things. But I, I do think one of the ways that we have seen this emerge is if you look at the frequency in our worship lyrics of how often we sing about God being the solution to our fears and doubts, but not our guilt. Like guilt is is mentioned. I would say it's like a three to one ratio, fears and doubts to guilt mentions in songs. Uh, that's not a scientific measurement there. But we actually believe that the primary, or, or we, in the way that we sing or think about God, we think that the primary purpose of our salvation is that we would not be afraid or doubtful anymore instead of that we would be set free from bondage to sin. And mm-hmm. and what what these passages are telling, and I would I would argue that the end of chapter twelve is basically New Testament wisdom literature. I think that's the way that these phrases are articulated, and I and then I think our unfamiliarity with the Old Testament means that we think God is not in the business of telling us the wise way to live, which is to be moral. Yeah, that, I think that's exactly right. We have. Uh, and, and it's not, again, I don't want to, we just talked about oversimplifying, but we have psychologized the good news yes. and, and removed it from its judicial understanding of unrighteousness to, right, to, to righteousness. That's good. Bingo. What bridge is God calling you to cross that the gospel might go forth among the nations? Women like Lilius Trotter, Harriet Newell, and Sarah Hall Boardman Judson have indeed crossed their own bridges to get to the lost. Discover the stories of 10 inspiring female missionaries who changed the world for Christ. 10 Women Who Changed the World is seminary president Daniel Aiken's powerful tribute to these women who fulfilled the Great Commission. May we all follow in their footsteps. 10 Women Who Changed the World is available wherever books are sold. We live in a possession and money-obsessed culture, but what does the Bible say about generosity? In his new book, A Short Guide to Gospel Generosity, author Nathan Harris shows us that the answer to our obsession with possessions is turning to the gospel, because only in the gospel can we find the type of life transformation that enables us to turn our focus from ourselves and back to others, to give generously, and to follow in the way of Christ. To learn more about the book, visit GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. That's GuideToGospelGenerosity.com. Okay, so uh, Jen, you already kind of signaled this. How does this passage echo or line with other similar passages throughout the Bible, or even genres? Uh, where do you where do you find overlap? Like you said, you you've yeah. written widely on the topic of sanctification, and passages like this do overlap with other either books, genres, passages mm-hmm. that we find throughout the Bible. Mm-hmm. First of all, the assumption when you get into a, one of these lists is that you're addressing believers, right? You're calling them to, and and if you if you read through this, I mean, basically what's being articulated here is look like Christ. That's that's the one sentence summary of of what's being given to us here. Um, And, you know, we know from our time in Romans that Paul is capable of stringing together extremely long sentences. Like if you just look at the opening passage of Romans, I think it's seven verses that take up one whole sentence there at the beginning of the book. It just goes on and on and on. And yet when we get to to verse nine um, of chapter 12, 
um, all of a sudden we're getting these little punchy short statements. And just the rhythm change should be a signal to us that Paul is is queuing up something. He's he's pricking our Old Testament memories because it starts to feel a lot like the Proverbs. He's giving you these little shots of wisdom, um, rapid fire. And then, you know how I love to count those funny Old Testament numbers um, in chapter, in verses nine through 13, you have um, seven marks of what it looks like for us to relate to one another within the body of believers. Um, and then it shifts in, in verse 14 and through the end of the chapter, and you actually have 10 statements that I would say deal with a broader um, discussion of how we are to live at peace with all people. So very Old Testamenty, I would say. Old Testament because of the numbers and the structure or because of the substance or both? Uh, both. Yeah, I think the content feels feels like it feels like Proverbs. Yeah, it does. In that kind of very axiomatic style, mm-hmm. very, you know, like it's just kind of quick fire where they're all within the same kind of environment. They're all kind of dealing with the same kind of thing, but Mm -hmm. they're not necessarily strung together with a narrative or a series of comments. It's just like bang, bang, bang. Well, you could argue, you could even argue that like, um, in nine through 13, these seven statements that are found here, let love be genuine basically is an overarching, you know, these are, it's almost like, um, it is like in, in the wisdom literature where you have this, this heavy parallelism, a reiteration of the same idea, expanding it out, growing it a little bit more with each statement. And I think that's what we're seeing here is a layering of a concept. Yeah. Yeah. And is he, is he building to the hardest one at the end? Like, is that, is it, is it a, I mean, not that they're one of them is easier than the other, but it does seem like by the time he gets to verse 19, the, the last three are very, they're a lot more tied together than the ones that have come before it, right? Like never avenge yourselves, vengeance yeah. is mine. Then it's like, but no, to the contrary, now I'm dealing with, so if you're not going to do vengeance, what will you do with your enemy? Okay, you're going to love. And then we pan out at the very end yeah. to do not become overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Yeah. I think of it kind of as like a megaphone shaped passage where it starts with this one small statement and then it just takes its time blowing it out bigger and bigger through the, mm. through the whole end of the chapter. Well, and it's certainly not just the Old Testament, but this, this does feel a little bit, or at least it's in the same space as something like the Sermon on the Mount, right? Yeah. Or, or uh, Colossians 3. I mean, there's a heavy overlap, I think, with the ideas in Paul's other epistles where he begins to enumerate um, virtues. That's, or, or it even feels, uh, maybe it could feel a little bit like the first part of Philippians 2, verses 1 through 5. Mm-hmm. You know, do nothing from rivalry, conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Uh, well, and I do think you're, you're bringing up an important point because he's going he's gonna to land on, you know, he's going to, in verse 16, he's going to say, do not be haughty or proud, which has been an undercurrent. Like you can't possibly do any of these other things if, if you're working from a position of pride. And that's the idea that he had introduced. Um, we didn't really get into it in our last episode, but um, he says in verse three, don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to. So his opening salvo is, if you're going to have too high of an estimation of self all of this is not going to go well for you. So I think that's yeah. the underlying. It's don't do this. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought. And so then when you think about, you know, he's setting up this whole conversation about submission. If you don't think of yourself more highly than you ought, what do you think of yourself as? You see yourself rightly as someone who is trying to go the lowest instead of trying to go the highest. And that's submission. Yeah. Now, yeah. if somebody... Oh, go ahead, JT. Just, just something I think that the three of us have really tried to kind of put all of our chips in on is, is what verse... 10 is talking about. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in verse 10, I'll, I'll go to the end of the verse first and I'll come back to the beginning. But at the end of the verse, it says, first of all, take the lead in honoring one another and 
previous podcast, we talked about the cruciform life or the life that's shaped by the way of Jesus. And here in the in the first century New Testament world, the, one of the most virtuous things that you could do was pursue honor uh, and not shame. And so you're living in this honor-shame culture where uh, honor is highly valued and mm-hmm. esteemed and prized, and shame is the thing that we're supposed to avoid. And in a Greco-Roman world, honor is something that I would want to grasp for myself. And here Paul is flipping that idea upon its head and he's saying believers rather than pursuing honor are supposed to give one another honor because of what Jesus has done for us. And that's something that we might take a little bit for granted in our world where like, oh yeah, we'll give honor to one another. For the first century world, this was a radically new idea that was going to be available to a new community, specifically the family of God that we mm-hmm. see highlighted at the beginning of that passage, mm-hmm. where he says, love one another deeply as brothers and sisters. I'm reading out of the CSB right now. Mm-hmm. And that's that's something that the three of us have really put all of our chips in on. Is like, what does it look like for brothers and sisters to have a new family that mm-hmm. has been developed because of what Jesus has done for us, of mm-hmm. spiritual fathers and mothers, brothers and sisters, aunts and uncles, kids and grandkids that, that haven't necessarily for forsaken their previous families, but find their new common identity in this family that Jesus has purchased for himself. And this is now this new ethical and moral code. So what we're going to see here in chapter 12 and moving forward is how does the internal community, this new family relate Mm -hmm. to one another? And now how does this family relate to their previous families or to external governing authorities in chapter chapter 13? And so he's giving us this ethical and moral code, or Jen, I think as you've rightly pointed out, wisdom literature Mm -hmm. for how now to deal with your family and external realities. But I would argue that that this verse right here, verse 10, maybe isn't the pinnacle verse, but for him, it's kind of a governing um, way of thinking about, you now have a new family mm-hmm. that's called to love one another because of what Jesus has done for you. And again, he's looking to both Jews and Gentiles and mm-hmm. Jews are like, they're not my family. Mm-hmm. Right? My, my family is the family of Abraham or, mm-hmm. or Gentiles might be saying, they're, they're not my family. They're, they're sons, of Ab- sons and daughters of Abraham. And Paul's saying, you've missed it. You now both male and female, Jew and Gentile, have been brought together into this one family. And the first thing you do is honor one another. Mm-hmm. You, mm-hmm. You, you, you don't pursue it. You aren't trying to set yourself apart. You're actually, and this, this reminds us of so many of Jesus's teaching in the gospels. You know, don't, don't, when you get, come to the synagogue, don't go to the first seat. You know, w- w- if you want to go bury your father and mother, like don't take your hand off the plow, like let the dead bury their dead. You're a part of a new spiritual mm-hmm. reality, namely the family of God. I think Paul is picking up a lot on Jesus, a lot of Jesus's teaching here on what it means to be a part of this new family that loves and honors one another in a way that would have been entirely foreign. So the last thing I'll say about this, the the word that's used here is Philadelphia love. So Philo and Adelphoi, so this brotherly and sisterly love, which would have only been used for blood relatives, Mm -hmm. is now used for the church, Mm -hmm. people who are not blood relatives. But Paul is saying, because of the gospel and a new reality, you're able to love one another the same way you would love your fatherly mother, your fatherly or your uh, 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 your father, your mother, your sister, and your brother. You're now able mm-hmm. to love these people you have nothing in common with in the world. You now have everything in common with in Christ. And I, you know, the reason I think that we're so committed to this idea is because in a culture that is losing its category for anything other than a a sexual relationship with another human That's being. Right. How um, how how much of a city on a hill would the mm-hmm. church be if we operated according to this principle of deep mm-hmm. affection, deep familial affection for one another? Talk mm-hmm. about looking radically different, and mm-hmm. 
And I love, and one of the translations translates that love one another like members of your family. And, right. you know, members of your family, you know, family first. That's that's what a lot of families will mm-hmm. say is their motto. And and familial love is, this is pointing back to something that we discussed previously. Familial love is not based on, you know, oh, your personality is appealing to me or, oh, mm-hmm. I appreciate what you bring to the table. It is, nope, mm-mm. Mm-mm. We share a bond that transcends all of that. And therefore, my my loyalty to you and my obligation to you um, is, is based on something spiritual. And, and therefore, mm-hmm. I'm going to prioritize you in a way that, um, that I think if we did it, if we really did this for one another, um, it would be shocking to the world around mm-hmm. us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's so good. Now, I, I do want to bring us back down towards verse 20 because there's an interesting line here that maybe a casual reader might read and go like, wait, what? Mm-hmm. To the contrary, Paul says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing, for by so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. So, I mean... <laughs> <laughs> This is the verse everybody loves, right? Like, well, yeah. I, I, it just kind of feels a little bit like, hold on. So you're telling me I should love this person because it will be like I dumped burning coals on his head. That doesn't seem, it seems like the motivation might be flawed there. What is Paul getting at here? What is this? What is he saying? Well, first of all, this is, I'm glad you mentioned this right after the verse that we were looking at, because, you know, in this section, I think we have expanded our view out beyond just the body of believers. But I think this is an expression of outdo one another and showing honor as it relates to people who are not part of the community of faith, right? Um, And it's important to couch it in what comes before. Um, In verse 19, where he says, beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. Um, Because we can read that and think, wait, I'm never supposed to receive justice. I'm just supposed to let people walk on me. But if you're familiar with the way the Old Testament legal system functioned, the idea here is don't seek personal vengeance. Like you're going to need to submit yourself to the courts for that kind of thing, to those who have been entrusted with governance, which is what we're going to get into in chapter 13, right? So Mm -hmm. Paul is already edging them toward what submission is going to look like in that scenario. Um, But it's so, so whereas we might want to just go like, do whatever we want to make someone miserable who has offended us. Now Paul is going to show us a better way. He's going to say, how could you outdo even the lost person um, in the way that you deal with conflict? And you can you can actually, there is a form of healthy guilt that you can bring on to someone, um, even though that wouldn't be your motive, right? Because your motive is let love be genuine. But there is a form of healthy guilt that descends on the head of the unbeliever when you return evil with good. Yeah, I, I think that's right. Because we have to, read this because that can sound like such a vivid picture. Yeah. Keep burning coals on your enemies. Like, oh my goodness. <laughs> like if you get to that passage and you're like, yeah, I want to do that. Like you probably <laughs> forgot to read the first 10 verses. So <laughs> uh, uh, and so, and so this is a metaphor, I think that's functioning in context. of what's going on here. And most of the commentators that I read talk about, this is actually just simply a metaphor for like, when you love people and we've all been in this situation before, like when, when, Maybe you have an enemy and you've done something mean to them. You've knifed him in the back, again, metaphorically, not literally, uh, <laughs> unless you're a zealot. Uh, you, and somebody's like, hey, man, it's okay. I love you. Mm-hmm. Like you feel a sense of like righteous shame and guilt. We're like, oh, man. And that is meant to lead to repentance. 
not to not to more pain. And so like when, when I think what Paul is trying to get at here is yeah. God's ultimate goal for every single person is repentance. Mm-hmm. Like he, he wants to see people turn to himself. He doesn't mm-hmm. want to inflict violence upon them, but love upon them, drawing them to the person and work of Jesus. So one of the commentators I read said it this way. He said, for in this way, you will make him feel a burning sense of shame. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, that that's kind of the translation that Paul's trying to go here. And we've all felt that before. And mm-hmm. Jen, I think it's your quote, or maybe you got it from somewhere else. Uh, shame can be a very useful teaching tool. Oh yeah. I got totally lit up for that too. Uh, even <laughs> okay, from, well, then like, it wasn't, it, no, it wasn't well, Jen, it was Kyle. <laughs> no, it was fascinating because it showed me how much Brene Brown has influenced the way we think about the term shame. Um, and mm-hmm. I actually love Brene Brown. I think that the, the book she wrote has been very useful, but the Bible doesn't use the word shame the way that Brene Brown does. And Mm -hmm. so, and I'm not, again, I'm not dogging on her. I think it is good to have um, distinctions between what we're saying and not saying when we talk about shame and guilt, Um, but the Bible does tend to use those words interchangeably in a way that Brene Brown Mm -hmm. has decided not to. So, um, but I think you're right, JT. I think what we see is that, um, you know, our impulse is to fight back, which means conflict escalates, which is the definition of Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, and <laughs> it is. I mean, that's what people are doing, right? They're amplifying. They're just, they're letting the spiral continue. And that's not just Twitter. I mean, that's just the whole culture right now. And so when, uh, and, and I think that the, the modern colloquialism for heat burning coals is kill them with kindness. Yeah, that's good. And and for the believer, um, like when we say kill them with kindness, we don't mean like, oh, I really want you to die. We, we want them to die a spiritual death and be and be raised to life. Mm. Um, and so it's a it's a it's a because the gospel doesn't make bad people good, but people <laughs> yeah. So and then, <laughs> then it makes then it makes bad people good. Poor Kyle. Okay. Poor Kyle. <laughs> Kyle, I would hug you, but I can't because I, I, I get I would it. hug you too, Kyle. <laughs> I would. I, I just. I don't. I would okay, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not. I'm not going to go back down that trail. But <laughs> let me ask this to kind of wrap us up here. What if I don't feel like doing any of this stuff? What if I just don't feel like it? Yeah, I would do some heart work around. Am I living? I, I think the thing that keeps us from really living this, and I include myself in this number is that we tend to, um, we live out of a scarcity mindset instead of an abundance mindset. Hmm. And what all of Romans 1 through 11 is setting up for us is abundance, abundance, abundance. And so when you feel like you got to hang on to what you've got because there's a limited supply, then you will be grudging in the way that you um, live out your Christian life. But when you understand that all of the Christian life is abundance um, and that we have deep wells in our relationship with Christ, then these commands begin to make more sense because we Mm -hmm. lose nothing in operating out of them. And, And ultimately, again, this is what Christ did. Christ modeled for us the abundant life. He gave it all away because he knew that there was no end to the resources that were his. That's good. That's really good. It's good. All right. Well, we have been able to go through Romans 12, uh, three different episodes. And I think it could have, I think we could have had a lot more episodes here. Um, I think this is a crucial passage for us, for me. 
I believe it's crucial for me. I believe it's crucial for the church. If you want to find out more about Knowing Faith or find out maybe even you're just somebody sent you this episode and you're like, well, you talked about these other episodes. Well, you can find us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, wherever you get your podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts. Uh, If you want more behind the scenes stuff or you want to check out some other cool stuff we have going on, you can go to patreon.com slash knowing faith. On our next episode, we're going to be looking at Romans 13 as we continue our journey through Paul's letter to the church in Rome. And in two episodes, we have a very special guest who I think you'll be excited to hear from. We hope you enjoy the discussion today. Grace and peace.